The following sermon is by Hunter Hayes, Associate Pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. Please visit us at 2100 Noble Road in Raleigh or on the web at ebcraleigh.com. And now, here's Pastor Hunter. We will be reading from the account of the crucifixion found in Mark's Gospel, Mark 15:33 through 39. If you're a guest here, um, or if you just don't have your Bible with you, there's a, a Bible in front of you in the pew, and the page number is 1014. Have you ever experienced the pain of being misunderstood? Uh, something that you say or do is misheard or misrepresented or by someone else. This happens all the time when you're talking to someone who speaks a different language than you do. You may intend to convey a certain thought, uh, but you're not sure after you've spoken that the message actually got through. Uh, people can misunderstand our words, and they can also misunderstand actions. Uh, just the other day, I was trying to find a parking spot in a crowded strip mall, and when I found a potential spot, I saw a lady pulling by, and I thought maybe she was on her way somewhere else, or maybe she was uh, maybe even going to leave or something like that. So I pulled over to the side to give her room to, to get by, and I was thinking of maybe turning into the, the spot. Um, but little did I know, she really wanted that spot, and she was going to back in, and that was her plan. So now suddenly, I'm blocking her from backing in, and I could see from the look on her face and the words that she was muttering um, to herself that she was not pleased with what I was doing, and she thought I was competing with her for the spot and whatnot. I, of course, would have been happy to just let her have it and move on. She didn't realize that I was, uh, I was trying to let her get by, so um, misinterpretation of things, right? We've all, we've all been there. Um, as we look at Mark's account of the last three hours of Jesus' suffering on the cross, we're going to behold misunderstanding on a magnitude that doesn't compare with our everyday miscommunications. In fact, of, of Jesus' words on the cross that Mark records for us, what we read in this passage is misunderstood both in terms of what he actually said in the narrative and in terms of the significance of what he said. And so my hope tonight is that as we study God's Word, we'll not only understand, but we will deeply consider and ponder the weight of Jesus' dying words and that we'll have eyes to grasp the full significance of these final three hours of Jesus' agony. Though we know of at least seven sayings of the Messiah on the cross from four different Gospels, in Mark's portrait of Jesus' ministry, he's depicted here as the silent sufferer. Okay, so the last we've heard from Jesus in Mark's Gospel was when he stood before Pilate on trial for sedition. And Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And he simply answered, you have said so. However, Jesus does not go to any other lengths to defend his own cause. As chapter 15 progresses, ultimately to the cross, we'll hear from many others, but not from Jesus. We'll hear the angry crowds cry out in verse 14, crucify him. 
when Pilate brings him before them. We'll hear the Roman soldiers mockingly say, Hail, King of the Jews, when they clothe him in a purple cloak and place a crown of thorns on his head. We'll hear passers-by on the road beside the busy gates of Jerusalem crying out, Aha! You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. In verses 29 and 30, we'll hear the chief priests and the other religious leaders yelling out, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. And Mark doesn't tell us what they said, but only that both of the robbers, both of them, who were crucified with him, also hurled insults his way. And all of these things take place in the morning after a sham trial and hasty miscarriage of justice when Jesus is delivered over to the Roman authorities and three hours of mocking condescension while Jesus hangs as a public spectacle on the cross. And then we come to our passage tonight, which is verse 33 of Mark chapter 15. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. First of all, it may be helpful for you to know that the sixth hour is about 12 p.m., so it's midday, noon. And we see a striking detail that, that Mark gives us. Darkness was over the whole land until the ninth hour. So from the sixth to the ninth hour, from 12 p.m. to 3 p.m., there's darkness over the whole land. What is this darkness? Well, some have speculated that it's, uh, you know, perhaps some sort of solar eclipse. Um, perhaps there's, there's something going on that we could explain by natural observable phenomena, but there's no reason for that. In fact, I, I think it's much better to just read it as a darkness that cannot be explained by anything other than the supernatural. Throughout the Bible, darkness during the day is a sign of God's displeasure, of judgment, and of somber realities. We think of the plague of judgment on the Egyptians when God is delivering his people Israel. Judgment is also a sign that occurs during the eschatological judgment in Joel 2.31. It says that the, uh, the sun will be darkened during the middle of the day. Amos 8.9 tells us that God will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. These are, of course, referring to even a future time. But darkness during the middle of the day that God superintends is a sign of judgment. I think one of the things that would have been conveyed to the people watching Jesus' crucifixion is that what's happening right now on the cross is so much more than an ordinary execution of a common criminal. Because crucifixion on the cross was a common occurrence. In fact, the Romans did it purposefully to make an example of those who were a threat to Rome or intended to be a threat to the Roman authorities. It was intended to be very gruesome, very grisly, and to make you not want to stand up to Rome. But I think that this darkness was perceived by people watching as something supernatural. Uh, if we follow the accounts 
in the four Gospels, we actually see that the mocking of Jesus stops at this point, once this darkness descends. Now, is it, is it pitch blackness? Probably not. I think it's just, just imagine a, a grayness, almost a shadow, that nothing can explain it other than some sort of supernatural occurrence. It's significant that these are the final three hours, and I would even argue the most excruciating hours of Jesus's payment of the sins of the whole world. And I think the next verse helps us see this. In verse 34, and at the ninth hour, that's 3 p.m., Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lemma sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And in these words, we get a glimpse into the true nature of Jesus' suffering. As the chaos of the crucifixion ensues, and out of the ordinary darkness casts a foreboding shadow over the scene, Jesus' silence is broken with a cry of anguish. And these are the words that in our story will be misunderstood, but I, I fear that they can also be misunderstood and underappreciated if we just gloss over them. So I want to I wanna hone in on these now. We see Jesus at, at the peak of his anguish, and he reverts to his native Aramaic tongue and cries out, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which Mark, of course, translates for us and said, this is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is a significant quotation from the book of Psalms, something that David wrote prophetically, thinking about the Messiah. And if it's on Jesus' mind at this point, but why is it on Jesus' mind? Why does he say this? Because Jesus is experiencing being forsaken by God. The words, my God, connote more than just, oh, I'm crying out to God. No, my God, he has a relationship. And I want, you to, I want you to think for a second. Think about the relationship that Jesus has with the Father. A greater relationship than any of us have ever had. Communion within the Godhead. The Trinity is, is a, a mystery to comprehend, but we see throughout the pages of Scripture that Jesus has a oneness with the Father. He even says in, in the book of John, I and the Father are one. There is a loving harmony and union between them. And so this union that we can't even comprehend is now broken. And he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's hard for us to, to fully fathom this concept of being fully forsaken by God because we don't have the same relationship that Jesus has with the Father. But we can comprehend that the punishment for sin, if we just go back to the book of Genesis, is that in the day you eat of it, you will surely die. Now, Adam didn't die physically when he ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, but he died spiritually. He experienced separation from God. In fact, it was just one sin 
Just think about that. One little sin disobeying God's voice, disobeying God's command not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that forever separated man from God because he is so holy. He's so holy. Consider that. So when Jesus cries out, why have you forsaken me? Jesus never sinned. It's a logical question. Why? Why is the Son of God, the innocent sufferer, why is he forsaken by God? This is a sign of the deepest agony being experienced by Jesus on the cross. Oh yes, there was physical pain. Crucifixion was, was an awful affair. If you study it, you won't be able to help but cry and weep as you, as you see the, the intense physical torment that somebody would go through. But listen to this quote from Charles Spurgeon. I think it's helpful. He says, All the tortures of his body he endured in silence. But when it came to being forsaken of God, then his great heart burst into its Lama Sabachthani. His one moan is concerning his God. It is not, why has Peter forsaken me? Why has Judas betrayed me? These were sharp griefs, but this is the sharpest. Jesus, as God in the flesh, was uniquely endowed with the ability to taste the full weight of the wrath of God against the sins of the whole world. And that's what's happening in these dark hours on the cross. Judgment is being poured out on the innocent sufferer. The disdain and disapproval of a judge who rightfully carries out a crime's deserved penalty because Jesus bore the penalty we, were, we deserved. This is a sign of the most perplexing unfairness, the most unfair thing that ever happened in the history of the universe because Jesus is the most beautiful, precious, innocent lamb of God. And I want you to think about this. If you're a Christian here tonight, you just will never know what it means to be forsaken of God. There are many ways in which you'll be made like your Savior as you grow. In fact, some of us might, may even suffer for him. But we will never, ever know what it means to be fully forsaken by God. I've seen people in their last moments. I've seen, I've seen you know, people in, in hospitals surrounded by their closest friends and family. In fact, we have um, such a sterile way of dealing with, de with death. And it's, it's a good thing that modern medicine allows us uh, to pass easily. We have all kinds of pain relief injected when, when it's done in a hospital. But even if someone dies on a battlefield alone, they can at least turn to God. But Jesus, when he turns to God, God turns his back. Even Stephen the martyr, as we read in the book of Acts, when he was surrounded by enemies and being stoned to death, he saw the heaven opened and experienced God's approval, looking down on him and his gracious blessing. Listen to Charles Spurgeon again. It's not the way of God to leave either his sons or his servants. 
His saints, when they come to die, in their great weakness and pain, find him near. Dying saints have clear visions of God. How usual it is to see the Lord with his faithful witnesses when resisting even to blood. But consider that in the midst of Jesus' suffering, this is me now, in the midst of Jesus' suffering, there is the deafening cry of silence. The Father truly and utterly turned his back on the Son as he became sin for us, as 2 Corinthians 5, 20 tells us. He became sin who knew no sin. I think that we're not affected by this as we should be, and I think it's because we don't rightly comprehend God's holiness and the repulsiveness of sin to such an infinitely holy being I'm going to give you an illustration, but it's going to fall hopelessly short, I know. I set out some sticky traps, sticky mouse traps, when I saw what I thought to be a mouse outside in my garden. And I wanted to catch it and deal with it. Unfortunately, the first thing I caught was a roach. (laughs) And I hate cockroaches. It's these little sticky pads with with, a little sticky gel on it, and if something crawls across, it's going to get stuck. Um, I hate cockroaches. I don't want to have anything to do with them. I want to burn them. Um, I have no mercy, no compassion for a cockroach whatsoever, okay? Um, I'm not a huge reptile fan, but I do like lizards, and lizards are good for the garden. They eat pests. Um, I'm a fan of them. But to my dismay, I came home and found that not only was a roach caught, but I caught two lizards as well. And I was saddened by this because I, of course, want the lizards to live and to help out in the garden. But it also pained me because they're still alive. And what am I going to do with that? (laughs) These poor stupid lizards stuck on this sticky pad that they never should have gotten into. So, so, so just dive in with me for a second. Imagine, you know, my little sense of compassion for these lizards. They're stuck to this sticky pad with cockroaches on it. The only way I can save them is to get close to those cockroaches, and that repulses me. Um, it's a long story, but I saved them, okay? So, uh, <laughs> but it was disgusting, and I hated it. But that, that's a far cry from how much God hates sin. Uh, God, God cannot dwell with sin. If it were that easy, he would just forgive us, and that's okay. Now, what kind of holiness must God have that he has to forsake his own son in order to redeem us from it? Just to see his face causes sinners to recoil in shame and say, woe is me. Isaiah 6, 5. And here on the cross, Jesus does not have the comfort of the Father. He has only a hymn from God's word. And now we look at the confusion. Verse 35. And some of the bystanders hearing it, hearing what he said in this Aramaic tongue, some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he is calling Elijah. And here we see that Jesus' words are misunderstood. The people may be aware that something out of the ordinary is occurring. They, they see the physical signs going on around. They hear Jesus 
cry out. And they say, maybe he's calling Elijah. Elijah was promised in the Old Testament. In fact, the last words that God had given to the Jewish people before Jesus came on the scene were in Malachi 4-5, where God promised to send Elijah as part of the eschatological age. So I, I could see somebody in this moment seeing the signs and going, oh man, maybe something's going to happen here. Maybe Elijah will come right now. We even, there's even a tradition in later Talmudic literature that Elijah comes to the aid of those in need. Look at the response, though. Verse 36, And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. So at this point, the bystanders are engaged. I think, I think this is an attempt to witness some kind of, some kind of additional miracle that will explain the spectacle that's taking place in front of them. I think it's ironic that this bystander is, is addressing the soldiers and saying, wait, leave him alone. Let's see what happens, as if they're the ones in control. This is an event that's taking place under the superintendence of God. God is crushing his own son and weeping from heaven. The son fails. And these people think, let's just wait and see what happens. Let's, let's engineer things and orchestrate them ourselves. I think the verses that follow show who was really in control, though. So let's read that, verse 37. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last it's significant that the way this is said, even in, in the Greek, puts Jesus really in, in the focus here. Whereas these people think they're in control of what's going on, Jesus is the one who's in control of his own death. And this, of course, reminds us what he said in John 10, that nobody takes my life. I lay it down of my own accord. Remember, he went to the cross willingly. Believe it or not, he was in control, even of these final moments. And he uttered a loud cry. What was it that he said? Well, we don't know exactly what Mark is, saying, is, is telling us. Um, we know from other Gospels that there are other things that Jesus said. In fact, the last thing he said before he gave up his spirit was, Father into your hands, I commit my spirit. Jesus knew the work was done. He said it is finished. He knew that the work of atonement was fully complete. And Jesus, in this act of crucifixion, which could sometimes last for days, he knows when it's enough. Just three hours of intense anguish and being forsaken is enough to atone for the sins of the whole world. And he, in complete control, cries out with a loud voice. That's also astonishing, because when you're hanging on a cross, you're gasping for every little breath you can get. But Jesus, in complete control, utters what he needs to say and what we need to hear. And now look at verse 38. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. 
This, again, is an unmistakable sign of supernatural activity. Nobody rips the temple curtain, which was several stories high, from the top down. God's also communicating something here. Um, I won't go into detail, but I think that the author of Hebrews explains this for us in Hebrews 10.20 when he says, We have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. When Jesus' body was ripped for us, it was rending the curtain of his flesh, providing a way for us to have intimate communion with God. The curtain was designed to protect us sinners from the holiness of God's presence. The high priest was able to enter but once a year, and even then, he was under strict regulations. Now, that curtain has been ripped apart so that we can enter into fullness of communion with God, the opposite of what Jesus experienced in being forsaken. And Jesus invites us in through him. Isn't that the wonderful thing? John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And now we need to consider the words of the centurion. Look at verse 39. When the centurion, that is the Roman soldier, who stood facing him, saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the Son of God. In Mark's gospel, this is the first time that someone, not Jesus, has acknowledged this truth that Jesus is the Son of God in a sincere way. And this is, of course, one of the the most important themes of Mark's gospel. In verse 1, he says the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That's what Mark is trying to convey to us, is that Jesus is the Son of God. And what is it about Jesus' death that caused the centurion... A, a pagan Gentile. For all we know, he may have worshipped many gods. But here he stands now watching Jesus breathe his last in this way. And, and he says, surely this man was the Son of God. Well, it may have been, it may have also included what Jesus said. It may have been, you know, Jesus saying, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. But certainly the spectacle, the supernatural wonders, the darkness, the earthquake that Matthew records for us would have certainly been amazing to behold. But as we, as we read of a Roman centurion being moved to believe in Jesus Christ, we, we have to ask ourselves, what evidence does God need to give you? In the book of 1 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul says, We preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. And as Christians, we can come before the cross and see in it our salvation. 
Nothing but the, the substitution of the innocent one could set us free. But because Christ died for us, we have hope. Let's pray. Dear God, thank you for forgiving us, for giving us hope. Thank you for protecting us. Lord, we are, we are undeserving sinners. We are the ones who sinned in a way that deserves death. God, the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. Help us to see and to savor what our Savior has done for us. Dying in grief and agony, being forsaken in a way that we'll never have to experience or know. Lord, help us to worship him. Thank you that Jesus rose from the dead three days later, conquered death and sin. Lord, I pray that you would help us to be faithful to him and to love him. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. You've been listening to Hunter Hayes, Associate Pastor of Emmanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. For more information and free access to other messages, go to ebcraleigh.com. That's E-B-C-R-A-L-E-I-G-H dot com.